Welcome to the Stockman Grass Farmer Podcast, where our mission is to help create a healthy planet and people through profitable grass-based livestock production. Grass farming is a 24-7 job and you can't always get away, so we've put together this podcast so that you can listen while you work or whatever you're doing, but always on your schedule, whenever and wherever you want. Be sure to check out the episode notes for links to freebies and special offers. Join our email family and stay up to date on our happenings and like us on social media. Today we have an oldie but goodie. This is Take a Look at Sheep by Hudson Glimp. Hudson Glimp shows you how to make some serious money from a relatively small family farm. Be sure to check out the show notes to learn more. Thanks for listening. This is Hudson Glimp. Recorded live at the 1997 SGF Conference on Business and Finance. Alan was talking about risk management. I, while the rest of the people are getting in here, I'll, I'll mention, uh, relate a little per- personal experiences. I've, I've had the opportunity to work in several foreign countries and developing nations. Uh, and part of that has been with smallholder farmers. Um, and as you travel around the world, Africa and Asia and so forth, what has happened over the last 25 years is that average farm size of these smallholder farmers has gone from five acres to three acres to two acres and still expected to raise a family of five to seven children. And uh, the thing that has fascinated me is how these little African women and the men, they lean on their spear, go to town and hunt a job, the women run the farm, uh, is how they manage risk. As they get smaller, uh, they diversify more and more. It was not uncommon to find uh, on a five to seven acre farm, find uh, up to five or six economic activities on a, on a three-acre farm, you'd find 10 to 12. And and uh, last time I was in Africa, I counted up to 23 economic activities on a two-acre farm. Now, most of them would prefer to have a cow, Harlan, but as they got smaller, they quit cows and went to goats because they could run five goats where they could run, run, run one cow, and if that one cow died, they went hungry. The babies didn't get milk, but they could run five goats, and one or two of the goats died, they still had milk for the babies. Uh, the greatest risk managers in the world, and just unbelievable what we could learn from the, some of those people, or what I have learned from them anyway. That's entirely off the subject. I was asked to talk a little bit about the purebred sheep business and uh, and some other things. Um, if we could have the lights knocked down. Now I'm I'm uh, perhaps even a little more skeptical about the purebred livestock industry than Harlan was. Uh, I'm going to ask you two or three questions. And I think these apply whether you're talking about hogs or, or cattle or sheep or goats or whatever. If you're looking to be in the purebred business, you need to ask questions. Where are you? What are your goals? 
and who are your customers? And you better have a good answer for each one of those before you jump into it. Where are you? Uh, it amuses me uh, in that I will see people in Nevada with uh, uh, litter-bearing breeds of sheep trying to sell those sheep to desert range operators. Or it's almost as amusing to see somebody with a desert range type sheep trying to sell them to a farm flock operator. You need to have a breed that is adaptable to the environment in which they are expected to produce and which your customers are going to manage those animals in. What's your market demand? And what's the production potential in the area where you are for the animal you're trying to raise? Uh, if you're, hey, if you're in an area where they don't raise sheep, what in the world are you doing in the purebred sheep business? I mean, that's kind of a, a stupid question, but I, I see it all the time. You know, we talk about uh, products, and we, we generally talk about lamb. And that's where the bulk of the money is. Uh, wool is very more, is much more important in the desert range areas where lamb production is lower due to the environment in which you're expected to produce. But another one that we're seeing more and more of in the United States today is milk sheep. Milk and sheep, can you believe that? We import a hundred million dollars worth of sheep's milk cheese into the United States. Now, I turned 60 a couple of weekends ago, and I don't intend to, but I do know, and, and I've got a few friends that I rapidly refer those people to that want to talk about sheep's milk, but I know some people that are making an awful lot of money producing milk, cheese from sheep's milk for a lot of money. What are your goals in the purebred business? Are, 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 you, are you doing it because you want to win shows? And, there's a, and I, I would have to say that the vast majority of them are in it for either that or pride. They want something they can be proud of, a hobby uh, that we talked about. Uh, Harlan mentioned people with a lot of money. They want something they can be proud of. On the other hand, uh, if you really want to make a living out of it, you better be there to meet customer needs. Or are you in it to make a contribution? And I will talk a little bit more in depth about that in, 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 uh, in a little bit. Who are your customers? Are you, are you producing for other purebred breeders? Are you trying to raise club lambs and show calves and get rich off of 4-H'ers? I hope not. Uh, but there are those that do that. Uh, are, are your customers commercial producers? If they're commercial producers, you're talking a totally different production system than you are uh, for other purebred breeders. Looking at our sire breeds of sheep, we have the Suffolk, we have the Hampshire, Columbia, Darper, Texel. We have our range U breeds have got basically merino breeding. The Rambouillet, the Merino, and the Targhee. Uh, 
farm flock you breeds, we're looking for, with those range you breeds, we're looking for a hardy, adapted animal to the western range, and the uh, that's pretty good wool producer, because the potential for lamb production is much lower in that desert range environment. Uh, if we're in the farm flock areas or, or higher production potential areas, we want more lambs. And if we go to the higher, higher lamb production potential breeds. If we are uh, going to have a sire breed, we better look at the economically important traits. And that's uh, rapid growth and lean meat. That's what we're after in a sire breed. Lean meat production. That's what the Charlotte breed's all about. That's what the Suffolk's all about. Hardiness and easy care. And I'll make a point there a little bit. We have, we have a, a breed of sheep in the United States called the Suffolk. And the Suffolk breed of sheep in the United States is the premier meat producer of the world. There's no breed of sheep in the world that can match it for red meat production. But they're born daring you to save them. They're hunting a way to die. Uh, and we've got a serious problem. Our range operators like to, what they like to do is breed about half of their ewes to their, their white-faced sire breeds to raise replacements. And then the other half they'll breed to a good sire breed and sell everything to market so that they're getting the best of both worlds, if you will, as much as possible. A lot of them are just giving up on it because they can't buy a Suffolk ram and get him, get him to live long enough to get a lamb out of him on the desert. Uh, you you got a Suffolk like ram that you use for three years on the range, you really brag about it, you know, and, and wonder what that guy did to have one that would live that long. Uh, whereas our Merino Rambouillet type rams will live five, six years and still be productive. Ease of lambing uh, it, and, and adaptability to the environment and the climate in which they're expected to produce is, is very important and something that our show, show jockeys never heard of and never thought of. And, and Somebody has got to in our sire breed of sheep. Into the real in our range you breeds, we want adaptability, hardiness, and longevity. Uh, you add a year uh, or two to the productive life of a range you, and you've uh, you've added ten dollars to your bottom line because of uh, reduced depreciation cost. Reproductive efficiency is important, uh, and we want a ewe on the range that can do it without assistance. Uh, minimum amount of uh, human help and interference. And so they've got to be good mothers and, and easy care animals. And as I said earlier, we're talking about country that, that may not produce over a, a lamb, lamb and two-tenths per ewe, and uh, therefore wool becomes more important if we're talking about our range, range country. In our farm flocks, you know, we're shooting for a hundred lamb and a half or more. 
Uh, we still have to have one that is adaptable and a good forager, uh, high reproductive efficiency, and a good mother. Keep good records if you're in the purebred business. Emphasize the important traits. Now, the important traits are those that might be deficient within your flock or what your customers want. That's both, those two are what you should consider. And don't go selecting for a cafeteria of 14 traits. It's a, it's a mathematical given that the more traits you select for, the less efficient you're going to be in, in, in improving any individual trait. So emphasize those traits that are your, uh, that are your weaknesses or your strengths that your customers want. We have uh, in the sheep industry, just like DHIA has, or the many, most of the beef breeds now have, uh, as, as Harlan referred to, expected progeny differences. We can now get expected progeny differences on, on rams of most of our important breeds uh, through the National Sheep Improvement Program. And uh, it's a vital program. And it's one that if I was a commercial producer, I would demand to know that information. If you're in one of the blackface breeds, you better be looking at certifying your flock scrapey free. Scrapey uh, has been implied or implicated in Great Britain with uh, mad cow disease. Now, I think we are at the point now where we have scientifically proven that there is no relationship between scrapie and mad cow disease. They both are a type of spongiform encephalopathy, but they are both caused by two different organisms, um, and we haven't seen them. We haven't seen what caused either one of them. They're what we call a prion, uh, but we know that there are two different diseases caused by two different causative agents. Uh, and we now have a certification program where our flocks can be certified as scrapie free. I have never read of or heard of a case of scrapie in a white-faced breed of sheep under native natural conditions. However, our black-faced breeds and crossbreeding within those breeds of our show jockeys has has spread that uh, disease throughout the blackface breeds, and they better get them cleaned up. Because one of these days, somebody's going to murder the whole bunch. What's a what's a, a good commercial ram worth? What should what should a range or good commercial sheep producer being be paying for a ram uh, for their flock. The sire breeds, uh, the good rule of thumb we have is the value of four market lambs. And right now that's uh, somewhere between four hundred and five hundred dollars. And that's what most uh, Suffolk rams sold for this past year. And our ewe breeds, the value of four yearling ewes. 
Well, right now, the early several Ramblay Rams and Marina Rams brought $600 this year, but I would say the bulk of them brought 440 to $500. And that's a, that's a fair market value. And, and a purebred breeder has got to get those kind of prices or he can't stay in business. I would venture to say that less than 5% of the people in the purebred livestock industry are making a profit. Uh, and I think, uh, I think that can be supported, truly making a profit if they're honest. I will tell you this, that in our operation in, in Nevada and in, in Kentucky, uh, I was so concerned about foot rot and one or two other problems that I had a flock of a hundred head of purebred Suffolk ewes of my own to raise my own rams. I had to put three times as much labor in that purebred flock per ewe as I did in my commercial ewes. And I got tired of it. And, and I told my partner, I said, look, these, these things are paid for. They're mine. I've owned them for 10 years. They're paid for. Uh, and I'm tired of messing with them. And I put them in a separate barn behind my house. And I said, I'm going to go out there at 6 o'clock in the morning and check on them. I'm going to go out at 5 o'clock in the afternoon and I'll straighten out the messes I got. And that's it. And if they don't raise the lamb, they're going to get culled. The first year I went to 55 ewes. And I told him, I said, I'm gonna be, I may get out of the business, but I'm going to do it and it's going to work or what. The second year I went to 40 ewes. And I was beginning to believe I was going to get out of the purebred Suffolk business. But then they turned around. And, and when I started, they were dropping 190% lamb crop and raising barely 100. And I was working blood, sweat, and tears trying to save them. At the end, I was back up to 175, 80% lamb crop and weaning a lamb and a half per ewe with no assistance. Those sheep changed shape. They weren't these stovepipe, long-legged, meatless wonders that you see in the showroom today. They were, they were back to a classical, good, barrel-chested uh, uh, ewe that obviously had uh, good room and gut capacity and reproductive capacity and some muscling in them. I'll tell you a little bit about a program we have in, in Nevada. And I'll go back to the one point is what is your goal and is it to, is it to do some good? Uh, a foundation at the university, uh, a foundation in Nevada called the Wigan Foundation decided it wanted to see if it could help the western range sheep industry. And it said, we want a good range sheep. I was at the U.S. At the, uh, US sheep experiment station as director and uh, was called on to help them, advise them in setting up this program. And about that time, uh, the Agriculture Research Service was so proud of what I was doing that they was going to promote me and send me to Washington, D.C. as a deputy administrator. And uh, uh, the gentleman that, that controlled that foundation endowed a chair at the University of Nevada if I'd come there. And it wasn't a real hard decision to make. I tell you what, if you spent much time in Washington, D.C., it wasn't a hard decision to make at all. We run a ranch that's... Uh, 
a typical Nevada ranch. There's um, uh, 2,000 acres of private land, of which about 200 is irrigated, and uh, 105,000 acres of public land. Now this was a this was a ranch that had just been beat to death. Three people had gone broke trying to make a living in the cattle business on it, and and we got it switched to a sheep permit, um, and asked the question: Can we raise a sheep that can produce both good lamb and good wool? Nobody has scientifically proven to me that you can't. Now I know this. Every time we have gone for extremes in any particular trait in the purebred business, we get ourselves in trouble. We've gone to extremes in muscling, muscling calving difficulties, all sorts of other things. We go to extremes in milk production. There's a very good reason why the Hereford cow is a poor milker. In West Texas and the Western United States, if a cow didn't wean a calf, we called her. And if she, if she uh, produced too much milk during the drought years, she didn't bring back, breed back. So we had 100 years of natural selection against heavy milk production in that breed. And we've had all kinds of train wrecks with people that have tried to make Semental cattle work as crossbred with the Herefords are as, as straight because they people who had been in the Hereford business were kind of emotionally acceptable to the Herford, to the Simmental because they had a white face, you know. And they'd slip a little of that in and see what happened. Well, that high milk production will cause a train wreck on some of these desert countries because it demands too many nutrients and reproduction suffers. You get them too big and it's, it suffers. Uh, so you, but so I know that if I tried to produce 20 pounds of wool per year, reproduction is going to suffer. Probably body size is going to suffer. Uh, the same thing goes with the other traits. If I get them too big, or if I try to have too many lambs, I'm going to get in trouble. They must be adapted to our desert range, and we're talking four-inch rainfall country. Uh, there must be good mothers. And, and, and lamb by themselves without assistance and wean a lamb. And we were brutal thanks to this foundation and, and it putting the money in that nobody in their right mind could have done otherwise to let us do this. And, and try to at the same time improve the reproductive efficiency of our range sheep. So that's where, where we come from on this program and we're seven years into it. This is the type of country we're talking about. That's down on the good country. This is down on the river uh, in, the, in the good country. Uh, this is uh, shrub country, and, and those sheep get fat. One of the things that has caused a lot of train wrecks in the western United States is bringing animals in from, from other environments and expecting them to produce. Uh, we started out with Rambouillet ewes from um, from South Dakota and uh, Montana, and I brought them in, uh, wintered them on the first uh, first year, bred them and wintered them on the desert, brought them in to shear them, took that wool off of them and about fainted. 
they looked like a bunch of gutted snowbirds. And uh, they were in pitiful shape. I panicked and run and got, got uh, a truckload of corn and got them back in shape within a month so they could lamb and raise a lamb. Next year I was ready for them. I had a bin up, a bin full of corn. They come in, sheared them, and they were fat. They'd figured out what was out there on that desert and learned what it was and what to eat and what not to eat and what had worked and what it wouldn't work. And, and uh, so that, that knowledge of the plant community, what's good for you, what's not, what works, what didn't work, is very important. And, and adapted animals or animals that know your environment are very critical. We have a lot of problems with predators. This is an this is an Okbosh, a guard dog from Turkey. They're absolutely fearless. They haven't got a lick of sense. They'll fight a grizzly bear, and they'll lose. Uh, but I have seen two of them. I have seen two of them put a grizzly bear to run. One of them will get front and aggravate him, and the other one will nab his rear and we'll wheel on him and then the other one have him in the rear. And after about 30 minutes of that, he says enough already and he takes off. But they are fearless. They'll even fight a mountain lion and again, they'll lose. Um, but they'll kill a coyote or a stray dog. You better not bring your pet dog out to our place and turn it loose. It won't last but about two minutes. There are a number of breeds of these guard dogs in the farm plot areas. The more popular one is the Great Pyrenees, a great big old dog. They weigh 125 pounds, and they go woof woof, and they scare you half to death. But but if something challenges them, you want to know if you got mountain lions. Go look under your front porch, and your Great Pyrenees will be there. They ain't gonna fight anything. But these these idiots these idiots will challenge them, and we don't have a predator problem. We come in uh, off the desert in uh, late March and shear, and and then we go uh, on to uh, the irrigated pasture with the shorn ewes uh, ready to lamb. We lamb because we have nothing but desert. We don't have any high, high pretty summer country, so we have nothing but desert. We lamb on the irrigated pasture, and we uh, stay on that for... Uh, for uh, about uh, till the first of August, we wean the lambs, and the ewes go back out on the desert, and the lambs stay on the irrigated pasture. I've got 27 pastures, so I've finally got this thing about where I want it, uh, and and I'm, I don't have near enough sheep. This is what we're trying to do: is produce the Australian merino. Uh, we have half Rambouillet, half merinos, three-quarter merinos. Now seven eighths merinos and a few few purebreds. Uh, we saw a slight decline. That eighty is a mistake. That's eighty pound weaning weight should have been one hundred and five. We saw a slight decline in in pounds of lamb weaned for you and dollars value in lamb weaned for you when we went to the higher wool production, but. Our wool production, we, we went from nine and a half pounds of grease, 13.6 pounds on the three-quarter merinos, 
51 to 67 percent clean wool, almost double the clean wool production per year at the same micron. And we have topped the nation two years in a row with our wool clip uh, with more than double or over $12 increase in wool. So if you look at the total net, interestingly enough, the highest net or highest total income is at the half merino level. These sheep get no feed, no feed whatsoever. If they do not wean a lamb, they get culled. So we're weaning 133% lamb crop on our mature use. Um, we started down a little bit on our three quarters because the lamb production declined greater than, than the uh, wool production increase. The message is, I think though, that that we can increase the wool at least to the half merino level with our ramblaise and increase our profitability. One other little point in the feedlot, these, these purebred or, or increased merinos is increasing our gain cost. But we got seven pounds of wool off of those three-quarter merinos that was staple length wool at 110 pounds. So we got more than enough increase in fleece value off of those lambs in the feedlot than we did uh, loss in uh, uh, or increase in gain cost. So you got to look at the whole picture. We're looking at a lot of other things. So you can have the lights back on in our program. One is uh, what's a cull animal worth? We have uh, discovered here about uh, 10 years ago that the Mexican population, the Asian population, like uh, like call you or mutton. At this time, please stop the tape and turn to side two. getting ten dollars for these color use we're now getting sixty dollars think what that does to your depreciation cost it significantly reduces them we're taking those color use butchering them in our meat slab selling them at retail for hundred and thirty dollars a piece all the Mexicans don't lean million Mexican. of them in California you know twenty five percent of, of uh, of Reno is the Mexican population, the same way in Las Vegas. And these people, mutton meat. Now, mutton, it really turns me off, and I know it turns off most of this crowd, but they like it. And and uh, all of a sudden, we're now selling coal use for 40 cents a pound in Mexico, uh, which means our coal use are bringing 50, 60 dollars a piece. Um, that really significantly impacts the profitability of the enterprise because we were getting $10 for these color use. We're now getting $60. Think what that does to your depreciation cost. It significantly reduces them. We're taking those color use, butchering them in our meat slab, selling them at retail for $130 a piece. All the Mexicans don't live in Mexico anymore.
There's 15 million of them in California. You know, 25% of, of, uh, of Reno is the Mexican population, the same way in Las Vegas. And these people, these people like it. Now, it doesn't make any difference whether you and I like it or not. Find out who your customer is. And I'm tired of selling commodities. I want to sell products. And, and they just like it chunked up. You go to Mexico and go to a meat market, and what do you get? Wherever they are on that carcass. They don't know anything about cuts. And the freshest meat on that hanging carcass in Mexico is on the front end because it's hanging upside down, and that's where they start, down to the bottom and work up. They like the front end meat. And, and they're accustomed to paying 50% of their disposable income for food. They come to the United States, and yes, they make a minimum wage. Now, nobody makes minimum wage in Nevada. They're making seven bucks an hour, seven and a half, something like that. And they, uh, uh, and you say, well, they can't afford to eat much, but there's three and a half wage earners per household. The average Hispanic household income is as high as the average white Anglo-Saxon Protestant income. And these people will pay for it. They're used to spending 50%. We bitch if we have to spend over 12% of our income for food, and they're more than willing to spend 25%. They are not price conscious. And, and we are missing these niche markets in the beef business as well as the sheep business. I just wanted to point that out. I hope you enjoyed this presentation. Well, check out the episode notes. And always remember the advice from cows and be outstanding in your field. See you next time.